And very importantly, we have creation of woman. And in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. For the very first time, something's not good. And it's more of a situational not good in, in that the, the creation is incomplete without woman. Not necessarily evil, but incomplete. And I can identify with that because I lived, lived my life not good. <laughs> Suffering. Don't you feel sorry? Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. In other words, the design of God is that male and female be together, that there be a oneness there. Typical. So, God determines, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that if I were expounding it, but let me just point out a couple of things real quickly for the sake of time. The creation of woman very definitely meets a need and God created us in this way. He created us with needs for partners. And the woman meets a need. And the word there, helper, that is not a servant or not a slave. Actually, it has the idea of, of servant, but it has more the idea of, it's an elevated term. It's used very often in the Old Testament of God himself. In other words, God is the helper. He's the ultimate helper. It's a high term. It's not a, it's not a demeaning, nor is it a, what's the word, debasing term. It's an elevated term. Very high elevation. By the way, it's used. And it's used very often of God himself as the helper. And secondly, this counterpart, suitable for him, has the idea of a counterpart, uh, something that fits perfectly, matches, and when you find the right person, they match. In other words, God has put together strengths in that person that complements your weaknesses and vice versa. Things mesh. Things are right. Things make you complete. That's the idea of suitable. It's an interesting Hebrew construction. That's the design. I gave Chris a read that. Right away they would translate it into them. Right? I don't understand. Because it doesn't say the sex, just suitable. Right. And immediately they're not suitable. They don't, they can't match. In other words, well, it's, it's a distortion. Yeah. Like a puzzle piece, like nuts and bolts, like, you know, anything that is complementary, things that go together. That's the idea there. And young people, that's the kind of person you need to look for, is someone that, in fact, complements you. It's not identical to you, but someone that has strengths that you have weaknesses in, someone that complements you in terms of areas that meet your, meet your needs. Pardon me? And that is a Christian. The only one that can fit. Exactly. Somebody that fits. And I think God has a design for, for people. And uh, so there's a lot we could say there. Secondly, well, let's read on. And out of the ground the Lord God formed... Every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. We have the naming motif. We talked about this earlier. Because man is given sovereignty over all of the creatures. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the naming has several connotations. First of all, the ability to distinguish differences and characteristics. 
He's basically, this is the first scientific endeavor, basically, right here. Man is classifying animals and giving them names. It's classification. And he's identifying, he's making observations and noting differences. He's noting characteristics. And in those observations, he's giving names. And in ancient Hebrew thought, the giving of a name indicated that you had the ability not only to discern and understand the characteristics, but you would give a name that represented the totality of that, in this case, creatures. So when we speak of the name of God, we're speaking of God in terms of who he is, the totality. In other words, it, it stands for the person. And in this case, the naming of the animal stands for the animals. And the third characteristic of naming is that's an indication of sovereignty. In other words, you have sovereignty over the animals, over the creatures. So this is an outworking of the creation mandate. But what happens here? And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Same little phrase there. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. So we have divine anesthesia here in the first surgery. A deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. So I take it literally. I don't see any metaphorical language here. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman. And by the way, the word fashioned there is a, a term that artists would use. In other words, this is a work of art. He fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. There's several things here. She's of the same essence as man, made of the same material. There's no inferiority here. In fact, there's a, there's a stress of two things. There are two things are stressed. The equality of personhoods of the two, but there's also the stress of distinction in roles. Complementary roles. And again, that goes against our culture. So she meets needs. She's specially built. She's a piece of art. That's the word that we have here. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she is made from the same material as I am, same equal substance. She shall be called woman. And by the way, this is the first poetic piece in scripture here. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Isha and Ish, specially built. And noted earlier, she's a helper. That's a specific part of her role and her function. So a woman needs to find someone that has his act together, that knows what God has called him to do. Because how will she know whether she can complement him and help him in that area? So part of finding a partner is finding someone that has a reasonable idea of what God has called them to do in terms of life calling. And then the woman helps to fulfill that purpose, and together they fulfill what God has planned for that family and that marriage. The basic, I think the basic thing doesn't, pardon me? I'm still an engineer. Yeah. I design different things now. Yeah.
That's always the case. That's always the case. That that's the order that God has designed, and that's the function and the role. So a woman needs to evaluate where that partner is before she gets married, because once they're married, that's how she has to fit in. That's how she has to function in terms of what God has designed. Well, can she fix over before you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Try. <laughs> Starting to tweak already. <laughs> We're going to get to that in Genesis 3. <laughs> okay, because her function is to help fulfill what God has called, basically, the man in the family to accomplish. Equality of nature, same stuff, we saw that. And the role is a subordinate role. And that's original design. It's original design that has no relationship to sin. This is before the fall. And if you have a problem with that, then uh, you need to study 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul uses the analogy that even within the Godhead, there is subordination. The Father is over all, 1 Corinthians 11. And Jesus Christ is subordinate to the Father. It has no implication of inferiority. Jesus is equally God. It has nothing to do with superior or inferiority. But there is a subordination of roles, just like there is in the Godhead. And in the Godhead, the Son is subordinate to the Father and the Spirit to the Son. It's an elevated role. And it's an important role, in fact it's an essential role, and it's one that's designed that God has given. So it's not the fall that brings in the subordinating idea. What the fall introduces is the potential for abuse. And that's what we work against, is the abuse of that role. Well, he has, the husband has a calling, and the wife needs to fit into that calling. And that's, in other words, that calling comes before what she might desire to go off on her own. And so the act of supporting Submissive, right, right. Okay. And then after... The, I'm sorry. You can have a, a ruler who is by position, and the people are subordinate under them. Mm-hmm. They don't have to like it. They don't have to be submissive. I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is submissive. Well, they do have to be submissive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take. What you're probably getting at is, it doesn't eliminate her individuality. It doesn't detract from who she is, and it doesn't diminish her in any way. Mm-hmm. Right. It's complementary. It's sin that distorts all of that, and it's sin that we battle against in terms of. Right. So it's not a, and that, so that's the complementary. Right. right? Both work together. Both work together. Strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. complementing. Right. So then learning from one another. Right. 
And a good husband will delegate whole big areas to the woman. And she has basically sovereign rule over it. And that's where he will submit to her. In other words, okay, what do you think is best? I mean, this is your realm. What do you think is best? That's what we'll do. That's the idea there. Okay, so we have the creation of the woman. And we also have the basis of marriage next in the next verse there. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. This is also an expansion, remember, of what? Creation mandate. Now we have parameters. We have the institution of marriage, and we have institution of family. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave. A break there, and this cleaving has that idea, this complementary, we become one, and, and in fact it says, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So from God's perspective, they're viewed as one. And this passage, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Had nothing to hide. God's innocence, no sin. Passage supports the idea of heterosexuality. It also has, from the very beginning, Jesus goes back to this, a monogamous relationship. We have the basis for all of these ideas in this passage here. Distinct roles, I've already developed that idea. Uh, The highest relationship, here's that word helper, azeb, azeb, or azab. Uh, The idea of permanence, they shall become one flesh, not to be broken. And there's a unity, a unity, one flesh, dabak, should be one flesh. This is the biblical worldview. This is the way God set up these institutions. And there's a, a need for a transparency. Arum is the word there, naked. They're both arum, a transparency, an openness. These are the essential ingredients of a healthy and a good marriage. Understanding these, and these are part of what are foundational to marriage. So you could say this is your foundation for marriage right there in one little verse there. So man's ultimate purpose is to glorify God in everything. We have an institution of the family. Man is to, from the creation mandate, build families. We have an institution that God establishes. He's to subdue the earth. He's involved with the garden that God has placed him in. We have the institution of marriage as well. Families and marriage. It's two institutions. At least two. We can contrast some of the main things we've talked about with the unbelieving worldview and the biblical worldview. Unbiblical worldview or unbiblical idea, continuity of being between God and man and between man and animals. The unbelieving worldview centered around evolution. These institutions that we've just looked at are arbitrary from uh, their viewpoint, the unbelieving viewpoint. Biblical, we have a creator-creation distinction, and you might even add between man and the animal kingdom, there's also a distinction there as well, sharp distinctions. No continuity of being. And instead of evolution, we have creation out of nothing, and then God expands that creation in six days, and we have detail of it in chapter 2. 
And these institutions are divine institutions that if we tamper with them, there are severe consequences that will come about. And the main thing that happens is cultures disintegrate if they if they tamper with divine institutions. That has been seen historically. And we may be in the process of seeing something similar. Okay, just add to our foundation of anthropology, man is created by God, not evolved. Number two, distinct from nature, not continuous. Number three, he's created in the image of God. He's not just a material creature. He's designed with a high purpose, not purposeless, as the secular humanist would have you believe. And we will see in chapter three, we'll add the fallen aspect. We haven't got there yet, but we'll get there. And that's not good. Secular viewpoint, basically see man as good. We'll add to this as well. So we've looked at the nature of God, the origin of language, nature of man, purpose of man, and let's take a look at the nature of creation. And we'll just start a biblical foundation for creation. Let me give you the secular viewpoint, first of all. The secular view of science or nature or the natural realm. Secular view is there are unchanging laws of nature. Those laws of nature just exist. The secularist would say they exist. They're here. They're unchanging. If there is a God, God is separate and distinct and has no influence, no way of changing these laws of nature. Separate. Now, we believe that God is separate from the creation, but we don't believe that the laws of nature are unchanging. Now, they're created, too, if they create. The so, laws of nature, put together with chess, have created function. Created function, okay, yeah. Created man. Yeah, you might say that. So, the secular view, what they do, in science, the study of these laws of nature, when you study them, you can come up with truth. That's truth to the secularist, secular humanism. If there is a God, and I deliberately don't capitalize it, and or religion, that's not really truth. What is that? Opinion. Opinion. Subjective. Subjective, opinion, values. And from the secularist, you have clearly defined categories here. That's why I've got the box clearly defined. Over here, it's kind of fuzzy. And undefined, not clear. That's the secular view. And the two are divorced. They're separate. They're unrelated. That's a two-story thing. That's a two-story view. Okay, that's the secular view. But this is the foundation for the biblical view of science. I'm giving you a biblical view of science. Only God is eternal. The secularist. Some secularists believe that matter, energy, the universe is eternal. The Bible says only God is eternal. In the beginning, God, and then God creates. So the creation is not eternal. It has a beginning, it's created, it has a beginning, and it will be transformed. We'll see that. So it's not static. When we say transformation, that means the laws are not fixed. They're not so much like laws. Secondly, only God is infinite. Again, the secularist would say that the 
universe perhaps is infinite, never ends. Creation is limited in all ways, or the universe is limited in all ways. It's vast, but it's limited. Only God is truth. We looked at that in our introduction. The creation is only a reflection of truth. The secularist says that the creation gives us truth, and we would say that the creation only is a reflection of truth. But it takes interpretation. It takes divine interpretation. Only God is self-existent. In other words, he has no needs outside of himself. And the secularist believes that the universe is self-existent. In other words, it just maintains itself. That's a false concept. The creation is dependent and actually is upheld by God. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Only God is unchanging. We call that immutable. Only God is immutable. And in terms of creation, the secularist says that laws are fixed, unchanging. No, only God is unchanging. Only God is immutable. Constants are temporary as God desires. And he can change them. And I'm going to show you when he has it on certain points. Give you examples of God changing the laws of nature. Only God is sovereign. And the creation is not independent of God, like the secularist would tell you. But, Bible says, the creation is servant to the creator, and God uses the creation as he sees fit. This is a biblical view, in contrast to that other slide. Instead of nature or the creation being out there independent, it is God as creator and sovereign Lord that is independent and has sharply defined corners, although he's infinite. In other words, you can't put him in a box, but he is clearly defined. In other words, clearly revealed. We can't contain him, but we can understand who he is. He's knowable. And the creation is temporarily constant, and that'll change, and dependent on the creator. And God has intimate relations with the creation, and he can manipulate it in whatever way he sees fit. He can change it, he can move it, he can do whatever he wants to. He can turn H2O into the one of the most complex molecules on the face of the earth, into wine, if he so pleases. He can still a storm just by saying, be still. He can bring a flood that destroys the entire planet, he can do whatever he wants to. And the Bible is a story of this creator not only using the creation, but he also deals with his creatures, but he deals with the creation as well. That's the biblical view. So we have, number one, here's your, your foundation, and we're just going to get the start of it, and we'll add to it later on. And on your outline sheet, how many of them did I give you? Yeah, on your outline sheet, I give you five. So number one. Nature, or the creation, is God's creation. He created it. No evolution. We've been stressing that when we were in chapter 1. In the beginning, God created, bara, the heavens and the earth. Number two, everything in Scripture indicates that the creation, including Genesis 1, is finite and temporal. Finite and temporal. 
not eternal. I already mentioned that. Number three, and this is very important, we haven't gotten into this yet, but the creation actually has a purpose to reveal God. It's one of the purposes that God has for the creation. The secularist says the creation or the universe is purposeless. They call it nature, universe, purposeless. No, it has a purpose. One of them, one of the major purposes, is to reveal God. And we have that in Romans 1, 19 through 20. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Now, this is the world in general, mankind in general. Paul, in the book of Romans, is going to build a case against mankind. And he starts with man is going to be without excuse because God has revealed himself to every man. Yes, we are created in the image of God. Very good. Such that God has built into man, and within man he knows. He has a sense that there is a God. That's probably, that's probably a conscience. And a, and a fallen man is, has a God-shaped vacuum. That's what who, Francis Schaeffer or somebody said. For God made it evident to them. So it just doesn't happen. God himself makes himself evident to every man. This is the internal revelation, creation of man. For, since the creation of the world, in other words, since Genesis 1, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, the revelation clearly reveals the existence of God. And not only the existence, but in some invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature. And if you just think about it as a scientist... And if you can conceive of the amount of energy and power in the universe, and if that universe was created, there must be a being that has greater power than what is displayed in the universe. Make sense? He made the universe and also that we could... So we could understand, yeah. understand it. Right. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen... Being understood. Notice all these words of knowing, which is known, evident within them. God made it evident. All these things clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, through the creation itself. And we're going to look at some of that evidence. So that they are without excuse. And by the way, the Greek word there is the word for apologetics. They don't, they're not going to have a, a defense. They're not going to have an apologetic. They can't stand before God and give him excuses. So that's general revelation. That's the revelation of the creation, the creation of man, such that he has an awareness within him, and the creation outside of man, external, that speaks and reveals God. So... That's part of the purpose. That's the biblical foundation for for science. Science should be studied for the purpose of knowing something of God. And the scientist should be the very first. We conclude Genesis 1. Everything is very good. At the first, everything's very good. There's no entropy. We'll talk some more about this. Where does entropy come from? Genesis 3. Very good. And we'll talk some more about this. We'll add five more foundation stones to science. So that concludes our
exposition portion and implications portion dealing with creation, first event. The next major event will be the fall, which we won't get to till next week. We've completed the portion on our study of creation, dealing with the exegesis of the passage, Genesis 1 and 2, and the major implications from that. So now we want to focus on creation again, but now we want to defend that worldview because of all of the areas of the Bible, probably the greatest area of attack is Genesis 1 and 2, in fact, all of the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And we won't be able to exhaust this area. There is a lot of uh, information available. I'm going to just give you an overview today. Not only the major attacks, but also answers to some of the issues and attacks on Genesis 1. And I've got these categorized on your outline sheet. The, The first one is we have conflicts with theology and history. These are older attacks, and I just want to make you mainly aware of them. I'm not going to answer all of them, but I'll just touch on some of the answers to them. First of all, one of the first things that was attacked in Genesis was mosaic authorship, and I gave you a little introduction to that last time when I told you that some scholars began to observe differences between Genesis 1 and 2, verses 1 through 3, and this what they call the second creation account. And what I mentioned there, that began a whole process of thinking that undermined Mosaic authorship. And in fact, undermined a lot of other things as well. That was the beginning of what's called the documentary hypotheses, where... They saw, for example, that Genesis 1 passage through chapter 2, first part there, as written by one author, an e-author, an Elohim emphasizing author. And they saw the Genesis 2 starting in, what, verse 4, written by a different author. And that would be a J-author, Jehovah rather than Yahweh. But basically the idea that Yahweh is in view there, or Jehovah, different pronunciation of the same name. So the documentary hypotheses began right there, and then they worked their way, and they noticed in other passages, in Genesis and other passages, another author, they called him D, a Deuteronomic author, and then there was another author that they noted uh, that showed other characteristics, P, which would be a priestly author. Well, I mentioned all of that the documentary hypotheses have been totally discredited. And most scholars that are up to snuff on scholarship don't use that anymore. Unfortunately, there are still some that are still lagging behind the times, particularly some Bible colleges that still refer back to the documentary hypotheses. Totally discredited. So I would support mosaic authorship and... The support is primarily from Scripture and also somewhat from culture in that uh, everything in the Pentateuch, which would include Genesis, there's evidence that it was written by someone that was very skilled, 
uh, had apparently a great background and shows a lot of evidence of even Egyptian background. So all of those little notes would point to someone like a Moses. And then from Scripture, Scripture makes it very clear. In fact, except for Genesis, Genesis doesn't identify authorship, but the other four books very clearly. God commands, for example, Moses to write these things down, and what he wrote down is basically Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But Genesis goes along with it in that the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament, refers to the law of Moses, or Moses wrote, or the New Testament referring such that Moses said, or whatever, and they'll quote out of Genesis, or refer to things in Genesis. In fact, Genesis is referred to a lot in the New Testament. And in some of those places, it refers to Moses. So we defend Mosaic authorship, and there's a lot that you can... Uh, in a lot of the books, you can find a defense there. Also, uh, once the book was undermined to some extent, the historicity of chapters 1 through 11 was questioned because these events are so fantastic, so out of the ordinary, like a worldwide flood. Uh, how could that be? I mean, there's no. they would say there's no evidence for it. Now, when we talk about the flood, I'm going to give you all kinds of evidence. There's so much evidence that you miss the forest for the trees. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, the undermining of Genesis 1 through 11, and again, there is a lot of historical evidence for everything in the book of Genesis. Jesus, for one, if you respect him, refers to Abel, refers to Adam and Eve, refers to the Genesis flood, refers to all of these events in chapters 1 through 11. And he refers to them and speaks of them as if they're historical events. So we could look at all of those areas as well. I'm just kind of giving you an overview here. You could look at the, the nature of the material. It's narrative material, historical narrative. And that's why I kind of pointed out when I was talking about the rivers, give specific locations, specific things. When we talk about the Genesis flood, we'll see specific dates. The flood gives us a complete chronology of the flood such that we have the exact number of days of the flood to the time that uh, Noah and his family left the ark. And and we have notes of time throughout and specific locations and those sort of things. So it's not once upon a time, it's historical. So all of these events are historical and certainly the creation would be historical as well. Yeah, critics also have discovered, and archaeology has uncovered, other creation stories that are very clearly, they would appear to be more mythical than historical. And the, the one that's the best known is the Babylonian creation story, which is called Enuma Elish. And this is a reproduction of one of the tablets. This is what it looked like written in probably Akkadian, I think is what it was written in. And this is a creation story, and one of the things to note from that story, it's clearly from an unbelieving viewpoint, and what the critics point out is the dating of this would be probably somewhere, well, before the writing of Genesis. So the critics say, well, what Moses did is he took some of these creation myths and made his own myth from them. Now, we don't, as conservatives, we don't dispute that Enuma Elish is older than the Mosaic account. 
But what we would say is the explanation is not that Moses borrowed from these older versions. Moses received from God, through however means God used, and there's possibility, some scholars believe, that the pre-flood material perhaps was recorded by someone, maybe like Noah or maybe someone else. And there's some hints of that even in the book of Genesis. It's broken down into what's called ten Toledoths, what they're called. And we've already looked at a couple of them in that phrase. And the Hebrew word there uses the word Toledoth. Uh, verse 4, this is the account. This is the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth. And you have these kind of breaks in there where it appears that there is the possibility that Moses used sources. And whether he did or not is irrelevant because what we believe is inspired is the product that Moses produced. In other words, the end product of the book of Genesis. That is what is inspired. Okay? It's totally different because they have gods that are part of different Yes. Separate gods. Yeah, it's totally different. And there's... Yes, these... Enuma Elish has some things that are similar or similarities between it and the Genesis account. But the point I'm making here is Moses, I don't think he borrowed. I think he either used these sources that seem to be indicated in the book of Genesis and or God revealed these things to him, more than likely these Toledoths. He compiled it, and the product is what the Holy Spirit superintended to get exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted, such that we have under inspiration the book of Genesis, and particularly the first 11 chapters. Make sense? Now, this is not unusual. What does Luke do in his introduction to his gospel? What does he tell us? He said he, he used eyewitnesses, he used sources, other documents. Those documents, those eyewitnesses accounts that Luke used, those are not inspired. What is inspired is the end product, the gospel of Luke. So using sources, God revealed himself in a variety of ways to the writers of all of Scripture. Some were eyewitnesses themselves, some used sources like Luke, and perhaps in terms of Genesis, and particularly the early chapters of Genesis, Moses would have perhaps used records that were passed on amongst the Jews. Enuma Elish is an example of the Babylonians being aware that there is such a thing as a creation, even though it's totally distorted from the Genesis account, but there's a consciousness in mankind, and there's others, by the way, that mankind is aware that there has to be a beginning of all of history, and Enuma Elish is an example of one of them, the Babylonian account. It would just be an example of that God-sized vacuum, that God-sized vacuum. With speculation and the information that they had, or the memory, or whatever. Question yes. Everybody asked. Right. Yes. Got to answer them. Exactly. And as Linda was pointing out, one of the major differences between Enuma Elish and the biblical account is that creator-creation distinction. In fact, the creation, according to Enuma Elish, is a product of a, a battle between the gods, and one of the gods is split in half, and part of that splitting is uh, the planets and the others, other things in the creation. 
So the creation comes out of these gods that have this battle. And there's other details in there. So uh, that's about all I want to say on that. So we have theology and history that historically has attacked the account. Today, the biggest attack and the most successful attack that has plagued the church even up until about uh, the middle of 1950s where believers began to put together an apologetic and what I'm going to give you is basically the results of from 1950 to today to basically give us an answer to the scientific attacks on the book. The unfortunate thing is, again, the church is kind of behind. It's always behind. And it's probably explainable because most theologians, most pastors are not trained in the sciences. So they're not equipped to be able to give an answer. And a lot of this comes from the scientific community. In other words, Bible-believing scientists that have given us the results of this. started with uh, Morrison Whitcomb, the Genesis Flood, in the mid-50s. Henry Morris, primarily a man of science and engineering. Yes. And Nancy does a good job of kind of tracing how all that came about. Yeah. So, the main area of attack is from science today, so I want to get probably the bulk of our time. I'm just going to leave a few minutes at the end for some other attacks and give you a summary of them. And what I'm going to do is give you the results, uh, mainly the work of scientists in the last few decades here. And the first thing I want to look at is this creation versus evolution issue. And there's other issues related to it. We'll talk about the Genesis flood. That's another issue that deals with science. So we'll talk about that issue. And we'll also talk later on a third issue. But these are the, the, the main issue in terms of Genesis 1 is creation versus evolution. And I'm going to give you also the results of an entire course that I taught. In fact, last year when I went to Ukraine, uh, one of the places, one of the seminaries I went to, I taught this course. So 40 hours worth, I'm going to condense into less than two hours. So fasten your seatbelt. Uh, we're going to look primarily at science. Primarily at science. Yep. Now, the essence of everything I'm going to give you is on this one slide. So if you fall asleep after this slide, then you've got it made. <laughs> All right. So the essence of 44 hours of seminar, class, course, basically, is this. Two ideas, if these two are true. Number one. If God is, in fact, creator, and everything in the course, or I've done this as a seminar as well, I'm going to give evidence that God is, in fact, creator. And if he is a creator, and also if God is revealer, and he has told us in his word what he has done in terms of creation and in terms of the, the universe, if those two are true... And I will give scientific evidence for both of these. So if those two are true, then there must be a unity between what I distinguish as true science and scripture. And everything in the course 
basically I try to accomplish this, is to show that God, there's evidence, scientific evidence for God as creator, and that evidence fits what God has said in his word, and what I gave you last week and somewhat at the beginning of this session, what I gave you is basically the biblical description. That biblical description fits true science. And there's other passages elsewhere besides Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, the, the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to the book of Revelation speak of God as creator. In fact, one of the last things that is praised in Revelation, I think it's 5, 4 or 5, one of those passages, is praising God for creator. And this is this is after everything is said and done, basically. Every every argument that assumes God's not the creator leads to self-refutation. Good, good. Self-refutation. Yeah, it's only the biblical worldview that is consistent throughout and continues in all the way down right. So, this is what I'm going to try and demonstrate in the time that we have. And... We'll look at evidence from lots of areas, just very quickly. These first few slides, just I give them to you because the Bible is not against science. In fact, the Bible promotes understanding of science. And just a few verses here. I'm going to give you evidence from astrophysics and astronomy, and the Bible encourages this. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the firmament is declaring the work of his hands, Psalm 19.1. In other words, if you study the heavens, or astrophysics, and or astronomy, they're communicating something. There's a communication there. Now, this is poetic language, so the language, is because it's poetic, is not saying that it's speaking verbally. In fact, it's going to be made clear in the next couple of verses. You know, it's not in language, it's not in words that you can understand, but there's a communication. That's the essence of what's being taught there by the the imagery of speaking or telling. And it tells us of specifically the glory of God, and here you have synonymous parallelism, another line that basically says the same as the first. The firmament is declaring, in other words, communicating, the work of his hands. In other words, they come. it comes as a product of God's direct Hands, if you will, an anthropomorphism. So, the Bible would encourage us, study astrophysics, because you're going to learn something about God. Study astronomy. Another passage, and we can look at uh, zoology and ornithology. Anyone know what ornithology is? Good guess. Ornithology, study of birds. Very good. Job 12, 7 through 8. Ask the beasts. That's zoology. Now again, this is poetic, so it's not saying go stand before that cow and start a conversation. <laughs> All right? But if you investigate and begin to probe and ask questions of the beasts or about them, let them teach you. In other words, they're not going to grunt and you're going to figure out, oh, that means this. Okay? But they will teach you as you study them. That's what science does. And ask the birds, that's ornithology, birds of the heavens, and let them tell you they, there's communication that God has built in. That's what Romans 1, 19 and 20 tells us. Built in revelation, communication. And then it says, and let the fish of the sea. In other words, all that God created, this, this is also reminiscent of Genesis 1. You know, God created all these creatures, 
zoology, ornithology, let the fish of the sea declare to you. Now, it hasn't told us yet what they're declaring, but we'll get to that. So, areas of botany also, there, you know, would be included, zoology, ornithology, in fact, all of biology. Evidence from geophysics and geology. Geophysics is the earth in general, and geology is primarily the crust, or at least the geological layers. Job 12, 8 again, or speak to the earth. And again, you don't just bow down and start talking to the ground there. This is poetic. Speak to the earth, or engage yourself in a communication here. Draw out from the earth ideas. And let it teach you. You can learn things if you investigate it. So it's encouraging us to study geophysics, geology. And along with that, other sciences, paleontology related to geology, orogeny also related to geology, tectonics. And by the way, tectonics is a recent science. Evidence from biology, genetics, same thing, same passage, Genesis 12.10, in whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. In other words, if you investigate these areas, this life of everything and the breath of all mankind comes from somewhere. And the next slide's going to tell you where. Related areas, embryology, etc. And verse 9 gives the answer. Who among all these, who are the these? All the stuff. The birds, the, the earth, the... Uh, it didn't mention bees, but bees are involved. Yeah, the the, star, the heavens, the, all of these, all of these. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In other words, if you study, this is the conclusion you're going to come to. All of this has to come from a creator. That's the whole point. So the Bible encourages us to study science because it's going to give us some conclusions here concerning who God is. So let's take a look real quickly at this whole issue of creation versus evolution. And it is good that you understand evolution. You ought to study it so that you can refute it. And when you study, what you're going to conclude if you do a thorough study is this is really a very, very weak, at best, theory. At best, very, very weak. In fact, I contend that the theory of evolution has virtually no hard scientific evidence. And that's what I want to demonstrate here in a moment. Nancy Piercy says this tube is your homeschool. Yes. For the bank and yes. pottery stuff. Absolutely. Right. Well, what happens is when they go to the university and this professor with two PhDs behind his name says, well, science has proven these things, da-da-da-da-da, and gives you a little snippet of seeming evidence. The student says, oh, okay, I guess the things of religion are way over here and the things of science that have been proven and you can demonstrate are over here. Maybe I have to believe these. And yeah, well, that's everything we've been talking about. Exactly. Okay. So, first of all, let's look, and let me give you a summary of the weakness of evolution. First of all, the mechanism, in other words, that that makes evolution work, or supposedly, are what Darwin called mutations, and today evolutionists still depend on mutations. They haven't found anything better to explain 
supposedly how evolution works. And in fact, if mutations are inadequate, then right from the very beginning, the whole theory is useless. And that's what I'm going to show you. So, since Darwin, there have been a hundred and what, 160 or so years, over 160 years of research in this area, because evolutionists were very much interested to demonstrate that mutations are an adequate mechanism to produce changes across the lines of species. What I'm going to give you is the results of 150 years of evidence, of study. And these are the conclusions of primarily evolutionary biologists, because they've been trying to uh, establish the viability of mutations. Well, what are mutations? Today, we know there are sudden small changes in the DNA code of genes, which are passed on to an organism's offspring. And this is more up-to-date because we know about DNA. So we don't deny the existence of mutations. Mutations are real. They take place. Well, you're... Yeah, you'll see it in a while when we get to later slides. You're jumping ahead, yeah. So mutations are sudden small changes in the DNA code of genes which are passed on to an organism's offspring. That happens. That's real. Don't deny that. But the question is, is are these small changes adequate to move from one species to another? That's the whole issue. That has never been observed. That has never happened in terms of record, of scientific record. And there's things built into the DNA that prevent that from happening, that we know today. Started off with wolf. Red different types of wolves. The dog so get, kind. Yeah, the dog kind. Right. So get, but you still end up with a dog. Yes. And that's the point. That's what we're that's what we're saying here. Yeah. Right. Yep. Still a dog. <laughs> right. Right. And this is important. Uh, Ernst Marr, who I don't think he's alive anymore, but he was a very prominent evolutionist. He makes it clear how important mutations are. And let me just quote him. He says, It must not be forgotten that mutation is the ultimate source of all genetic variation found in natural populations. Ultimate and all. In other words, there's nothing else that causes changes. And he goes on, And the only new material available for natural selection to work. So what he's basically saying, if... Mutations don't produce what they're supposed to produce. There's no evolution. So the only, and he says new material, and we know today that uh, mutations don't produce anything new. There's never new information added. In fact, there's always a loss of information. But he is working from the assumption that mutations do, in fact, give you what is required to, to produce new species. But the point of this is this emphasizes the importance of mutations. So if mutations don't work, basically, what Ernst Marr is saying, there's no evolution. So these are the facts. Mutations do occur. 
Evolution, for evolution, this is the mechanism that makes evolution work. For the creationist, we see mutations as destructive. So the issue is, is it an adequate mechanism, or does the scientific evidence indicate that they're destructive? And after 160 years of research, we're, we've come to pretty conclusively that this is the case. Destructive nature of mutations. So let me give you in series of numbered conclusions in a moment here.